My name is Yoav Oren, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Zug, an Israel-based startup that has revolutionized family communication. We allow family members to interact in a fresh and fun way, and we have successfully raised $2.2 million in a pre-seed round. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Fundraising Debrief, the podcast where we share the real stories behind successful founders and the recent VC financing rounds. My name is Vlad Kazako, and I'll be your host today as we interview Yoav Oren for an incredibly thoughtful episode. We touch upon his international journey, the edtech industry, his fundraising story at Zug, and the reality of being a CEO in times of war. He brings tactical advice on leadership, empathy, fundraising, and company building, making this one of the most special conversations we hosted on this podcast. For more information about running a social fundraising round, including show notes, highlight clips, and exclusive scenes, follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the Fundraising Debrief, as well as on our website at thefundraisingdebrief.com. This episode is brought to you by Flowly, the all-in-one fundraising hub used by thousands of founders from 70-plus countries to plan their rounds, research investors, share their pitch decks, and track access. Now, let's dive right in. Yov, such a pleasure to have you on, on, on board on Fundraising Debrief today. Really appreciate taking the invitation. Thanks for having me, Vlad. I know it's quite a situation back there in Israel, so I cannot be more grateful for you taking the time to share more about your background and your story with us and our listeners. And I'm really curious to understand just in the beginning, how's, how's the situation there? How are, how are you? How's your family? How are your employees? Ooh, it's a charged question. Um, I think that, first of all, um, as I said earlier, I think it's probably one of the hardest periods that anyone in Israel has experienced in their lifetime. It's certainly the hardest period that I've experienced in my lifetime. And, and we've been through wars here, uh, participated in wars as a soldier myself. But of course, going through this as a father and seeing the atrocities that were done to families and children, uh, some of which I knew, I attended a bunch of funerals in the last few weeks of people that I knew uh, and families that I know who were killed. And it's been extremely difficult um, on a national level and also on a personal level. Um, you know, for my team, very difficult to stay focused. Uh, it's, it's really, it's, the war is consumed most people. Uh, and because it really is a small country and in the end of the day, everyone is affected. Everyone knows someone at least, you know, not, if not directly, then once removed, uh, and it creates a situation where everyone is part of this national, um, really grief that we're going through right now. My team is dispersed. Some of our, some of my team members, their spouses experienced like real nervous breakdowns and had to leave the country. I have team members right now who are in Germany and Austria and Argentina and Japan. Some of them are stuck and can't get back. And it's definitely taken a toll, at least on the morale of the team. I think one of the things that gets us going, and I constantly am saying to my team, that one of the ways, or one of the key ways that we practice resilience is by continue building the things that we're passionate about. We fight this in this way. And the fact that we just keep on building, keep on doing the things that we know are significant, especially a product like Zoog that is here to connect people in a meaningful way, I think now is the right time to do so more than ever before. I can't even imagine what you're going through right now, but I think resilience is a great term that resounds of what you do and what your team and, and the rest of Israel is doing right now. And I'm Curious to understand, maybe we're jumping a little bit ahead, but I think it's a great segue into what's the role 
of the CEO of a tech hmm. organization when his country is at war? Um, that's a great question. I'm, I'm trying to figure out myself um, because, again, like on one hand, you're going through this trauma with everybody. And I think that what's worked for me is just to be brutally honest and sincere with my team, right? Not to say, hey, nothing's going on and we're fine and just focus on the business and keep on working and we'll, we'll be good. But actually to take, you know, take a, a real pause. Uh, I think the main role of the CEO is to really make sure that he has a good or she has a good understanding of the psyche of the team and how they're doing on the mental state and to offer them any kind of support that you possibly can. If it's, you know, just reaching out and sending them private messages or calling each person and seeing how they're doing and what they need from you personally. We've also had group sessions where we just had every one of the team just share how they're doing and people were, you know, crying on the phone, but also to be honest and share what you're going through. And I think that when your team sees that this has an impact on you as a CEO and that you're taking this in a very personal way, that it, a, it allows them to open up and share, uh, but also it allows for really for us to come together and kind of, and each one of us um, hold each other together and make sure that we're, as a team, uh, we're moving forward and we're, we're trying our best to, to, to cope with the situation. As I said, being honest and being sensitive to the team, to the team's needs. We have people on the team who are serving right now, went back to reserve duty. So, and I think like, as many touch points as we can to, to, to an extent that really that it, I find that it's helpful, I'll do with the team on a personal or in a collective way. Um, but yeah, we're making this up as we go. As I said, this is not a situation that we've ever been in before. And I'm curious in terms of prioritization, in terms of figuring out how yeah. does the business continue going in a situation like this? Yeah. How have you adapted the business of Zug to accommodate for, uh, for this? So I'll say the other one other thing that, that I uh, install in my team, or I try to install at least in my team, is really hope and seeing kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's really hard to see when you're in the midst of a crisis or in the midst of a war, um, but really showing them and explain to them, like, look what we're building, look what you are doing, look how much light we're bringing into the world and let that be a focal point or a North star of hope. And I think that once they see that and kind of take away a step away and look at the, at kind of the outskirts of the photo, right. Or look at the, the frame and say, Oh my God, we're really doing good here. And I say to them all the time, like, this is where I get strength from. And the fact that I use work as, as kind of a, a way to run away from everything. And if we can do that together as a team, I think that it works well. And I think that it's proven itself too. So in the past month, we are continuing the same growth that we have been in the past quarter. Um, we're growing on average month over month by over 20% in terms of revenue, in terms of new subscribers. And I think, you know, to answer your question, Vlad, in a time like this, you need to focus on the essentials. What are the ground essentials that um, that actually can move the needle and make sure that you're not falling behind. You're staying in that same growth trajectory. You're focusing on what is absolutely necessary and everything else that is not absolutely necessary can wait. 
So for instance, like uh, me personally, I, you know, I like to do a lot of partnership meetings where I'm trying to find new um, partners for us for, um, for content partnerships. We speak to big animation studios, publishers all over the world. And the last few weeks, I've taken it down a note, right? We know how to produce content by ourselves and we do it very, very well. Uh, and only the last week I started to pick up and have these meetings because I felt that I, myself, I wasn't in that, I didn't have that mental capacity to actually sit down and have normal meetings with people. I was, we're in the midst of a financing round. And instead of going out and speaking to new investors, I was really focused on just getting the current round going, trying to wrap it up just so we have enough money in the bank so we can continue building and doing what we're doing. Uh, but really, as I said, narrow it down focus on the absolute essentials and be very, very sensitive to the team and the team's needs. This is great advice and you're alluding to some of the items and the mission you have at Zoog, but I think it's a great opportunity for you to introduce what you do at Zoog and how did it start in the very first place? Sure. So Zoog was uh, started, its birth was really at the heart of COVID. So both Matan, my co-founder and I were both parents to young children. And when COVID hit all of us, really, uh, then we were stuck at home and we were isolated from our families. And the first thing that we tried to do is to get our kids to communicate with any remote family member and really primarily with their grandparents. And we tried to do this through Zoom and FaceTime or any other live communication product. And we quickly learned that video communication with our kids uh, was just awful. Our kids could not handle small talk conversations at all. They weren't interested in these type of calls. My kids had, you know, could last about 30 seconds on a call and they were done, just not interested in anymore. And we saw that this created frustration on all sides. You know, my parents were frustrated because they were used to connecting with their grandkids. And suddenly the caring kids have want to have nothing to do with them. And I was frustrated because I had to bribe my kids to spend a few minutes on the phone with their grandparents. And that was not pleasant. And my kids were, you know, upset because I kept on shoving the phone in their face and expecting them to speak. Um, but on the flip side, what was interesting about COVID was that you had this point in time where suddenly video communication became mainstream, right? So suddenly the world adapted to video communication, right? And everyone, you know, enterprise software companies were selling enterprise software on Zoom, which before that it was a taboo. We raised capital from investors that we actually never physically met, uh, right? If I would have said this to investors a few years back, they would probably look at me like I was crazy. Educational systems adapted and even grandparents adapted. So you had this point of time, and I think it's a you know it's a crucial thing for any startup, right? Yes, you need to have a problem uh, that is significant. Yes, you need to have the right founder product fit. There has to be a lot of moving parts, but the timing is actually a really huge thing there. And I think that the timing was right to create a really a cross generational product that really was built for this specific use case. It's a huge market. You have 70 million grandparents in the U.S. alone. And even without COVID, they're seeing their grandkids about twice a year. So by default, the way that they're communicating is through phone or video. We really wanted to build a product that really worked. And this is where the idea for Zoo came. And we saw that in order to get our kids to actually connect and, and to stay connected, they had to be entertained. And there was kind of no way around that. So we said, okay, what happens if we make the grandparents really the star in the children's content. And if we merge that content and communication into one, and that was kind of the birth of Zoo, 
So Zook today is it's an asynchronous communication experience. But essentially, you open up our app, and once you enter the app, you'll see this variety, this huge library of content. And the content today includes anywhere from books uh, to songs in karaoke style. Uh, we have a category of dad jokes, even and 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 short facts about life and stuff that are fit for very very like toddlers and stuff for fit for kids a bit older. And every content is completely different. And all you have to do, Vlad, as a user, you start you know select what you want to record, and we actually insert you into that content. So as you record, we changed the backgrounds, the animations, uh, 2D animations, 3D artwork. We add a soundtrack and we add, we add, we complement this with AR technology as well that changes uh, based on the character that you're depicting in each scene. So every scene you'll have a different AR mask and it's just this really easy, incredibly fun, very entertaining experience. So then the grandparent or any recorder can share and the kid actually doesn't have to download the app. They can view the recording on any device at any time. Uh, they then have the opportunity to reciprocate, to ask for their next content, leave video messages, send back emojis. Um, yeah, and it's, it's a beautiful experience. And of course, everything that you record on Zoom is also saved forever in a family memory album. So kids have the opportunity to view your recordings, not only, you know, as many times as they want, but also for years to come. It's a really fascinating concept at the intersection of a interactive storybook and Snapchat designed yep. for children. And you're, you're very right about the timing, right? And, and COVID and 2020 being really the catalyst for this remote work and remote relationship building, not just in, in fundraising and business, but also at home and with our close relatives. But I'm curious to understand your background before Zug, maybe let's say a little bit less traditional for a founder in the family tech space. Oh, there's uh, nothing space. traditional about my so story. How, <laughs> so how, let, let, let's walk a little bit for your first decade of career, because I think it would be very interesting for some of our listeners to understand also Yoav before Zug. Okay. So as I said, it's going to be, it's, it, it's not a common story, I think. I'd like to think. My focus for the vast majority of my career has been China. I have always been passionate about China. And I say really passionate because my love to China started from a very young age. And I always knew that eventually I was going to go to China. Uh, I am a martial artist in my, in my heart. Uh, and I still practice to today. I've been doing it for 30 years now. And it was always a dream of mine to go and train in China. And after my uh, army service, so that's what I did. So I actually went to New York and I worked in a consulting firm in New York to make money to go to China and, and train in China for about a year. And actually, I went back and forth every year. I went for a year, but then every year I would come back in between semesters for more training periods with my teacher in a godforsaken like, place in the middle of China. Like, it's just, I, w I wouldn't recommend anyone to go there, but the martial arts are, are exceptional. And that kind of was my childhood dream. My dream was to go and train in China and to see what happens if I take a period of my life where I do just that. And it was amazing. And for a long period of time, I trained, you know, eight hours a day. Um, and it was, you know, painful and, 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 and fascinating and difficult. And I was completely alone, but I loved it. Um, and what happened in China, when I was 23 years old, I lived 
to my lifelong dream. And then I was, you know, at the point where I was like, okay, now what? Do I stay in China? Do I become a monk? What, what's, what's next? And I said, okay, I love China. I love the martial arts, but I don't want to rely on it financially. But let's not take a step too far back and let's see how I can continue learning other aspects of China. And this is around 2005 where all the papers were talking about the rise of China and the, the, the economical boom in China. And I said, okay, let's get smarter about China. And I actually went and studied you know, Chinese and I did my degree at, at Columbia University, majoring in East Asian studies and Chinese. Uh, and through Columbia, I actually had to, got to do a Chinese business program, uh, studying Chinese business, um, studied abroad in China in Jiatong University. And I actually interned in the Shanghai Foreign Investment Association after that. And the year following that, I was part of the U.S. delegation to the World's Fair. Uh, the U.S. basically selected 80 students from around the U.S. who spoke Chinese to represent the U.S. in the expo in Shanghai. And I got to be part of that delegation, which was an incredible experience. And that was my passion. And I knew that I wanted to focus on China for my career. And really, I was looking for any place after that that would enable me really to be the bridge and open a business for a Western company in China and be the nexus kind of in between uh, kind of the Chinese side and, and the Western side. And I looked in Israel and I looked in the States. And what happened was I got an opportunity to, I was called, I, I, you know, I had a few, few opportunities, but this one was spot on. And I, and I was very, very, you know, particular. I didn't want to compromise. So I had a few offers from different tech companies to say, listen, China's interesting, but we're not there yet as a business. So why don't you come and do this job first, and then later we'll talk about China. Or come, we'll do you know 20% of your time, you'll focus on China. And I was gung-ho. I was like, I've invested a lot in this. I'm passionate about China. I'm sticking to China. And eventually, I got an opportunity that was completely off of my radar. It was joining a, one of the world's largest institutional textile companies that happened to have you know, 24 factories around the world, including in Israel. So the company is based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. But it had a factory in Israel, an office in Israel. Uh, but it had also its largest factory in China. And I took a, and they said to me, you come, you join us, we'll train you in Cincinnati, and then you'll be the nexus between the Israeli operations, the Chinese operations, and the US operations. And I was like, amazing. Like that, that to me was my dream. It didn't matter if it was tech or, or textiles, even though the, the textile company itself is very much technologically oriented. They have over 70 patents, very much focused on the tech side of the textile business and developing a lot of products for hospitals uh, primarily. But in any case, what ended up happening is after my, I did like the six months intensive training course in Cincinnati, and I took a business trip to China with my then boss. And when we got back from that trip, we were already supposed to go back to Israel. He said to me, we're not sending you back to Israel. You got to go to China. And I had at 28, this amazing opportunity. They offered me basically to open up and manage the entire business operation in greater Asia. So all of Asia. And it was, it, it was an outrageous and, and amazing opportunity as a 28-year-old to do so, uh, because at the time, the company wasn't really selling at all in Asia. So I had the opportunity to go out and 
open this market for them, assemble a sales team, start marketing activity and actually do this. I told my then girlfriend today, wife, that we're doing this. And she, of course, uh, was gracious enough uh, to, to oblige and to support me on this move. And yeah, it was amazing. We moved to China for three years. And, and, and at what point you're making the decision? Well, there, there was also an intermediary step between the textile company and Zug. Um, yeah, but I'm really curious on this uh, this background on, on textile. Now you're making the decision to go into tech more traditionally, yeah. let's say, and then at some point become a founder. So walk yeah. me through those uh, few years right before Zug as well. Sure. So um, we were in China. We were supposed to stay for two years. We ended up extending for an extra year. And that year, our son was born in China. And after when he was about one years old, we were like, okay, it's time to go back. We weren't in Israel for close to seven years because we were both studying in New York before that, Cincinnati, then China. So altogether, it's about seven years we were out of the country. And we decided now is the time to go back home. And I knew that, first of all, I always knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but it took me much longer to kind of say, okay, now I'm taking the jump. I kept on convincing myself that I need to get more exposure, more experience in order to do so. Um, now, if you know Israel, Israel, there aren't a lot of um, there aren't a lot of industries. There isn't you know a you know significant car industry. Even the textile industry is non-existent anymore. What we do exceptionally well is we do tech, and this is what this country produces um, on a per capita basis, probably better or more than any other country in the world. So I knew that I was coming back to Israel. I knew that I wanted to do what I did for standard textile, but for the tech industry in Israel. And I was completely adamant about opening up the China market for, for technology companies in Israel. And same thing. I was, you know, I got different offers uh, for me to come on board and do, you know, this job and this job in a tech company. I just simply was not interested. I was absolutely interested and fascinated about doing this, opening the Chinese market, start selling our Israeli technology goods inside the Chinese market. And eventually I got a great opportunity to join SimilarWeb, which is a publicly traded company today. Back then, we're about 100 employees. And, and the CEO at the time was like, okay, let's, in the beginning, in the beginning, they offered me also a different position and I turned it down. And after a few weeks, they got back to me and said, okay, let, let's do this. And at SimilarWeb, it was it was a fascinating position because I we had to kind of make this up as as we went about. And SimilarWeb is kind of the the digital measure or the measure measurement tool for the digital world. And my first task was to really see how we can create kind of a, a data infrastructure, if you will, for China. How do we uh, make as many data partnerships as possible in order for SimilarWeb to measure and accurately predict? internet behavior in a certain market, they have to be able to track a certain amount of devices in that market. So my first job was to kind of set this up and see that we have a large amount of representation of data that we're able to obtain from China. And then the second, after that, I made a transition and I had a team in China and I had a local team here in Israel. I started focusing more on the commercial aspects and seeing how we can sell similar products in China. And I sold some amazing deals with some of the best uh, tech companies in China, including 
Baidu and Alibaba. And at the time, it was the largest deal in company history at the time was the Huawei that I sold. And that is a whole nightmare slash good story in the end, but it was um, difficult. Um, and after a few years in that position, uh, the CEO asked me to come on board and be his chief of staff and really work hand in hand with him. And I accompanied him on, on trips all over the world. And I got to be, you know, sit on all board meetings, investor meetings, uh, you name it, or management meetings. And that was, it actually, it was front row seats to how a very successful startup is run. And for me, even though before getting the chief of staff role, I was sure that I was going to go out and do something entrepreneurial. I, I already had an idea. I was focused on it. And then he gave me this opportunity. I was like, this is, this is kind of an accelerated MBA, if you will. And I couldn't give it up. But after the chief of staff role, I exhausted all my excuses. It was the end of the line. Like There was nothing and no other position that I could do that would prepare me as much to the CEO position. And and after that, as I said, there were no more excuses. And my wife was, again, tremendously supportive and actually pushed me. She's like, you know, she was pregnant with our third child. And, and she said, you know what? Now's the time. Leave now. Do this now. You're not going to forgive yourself. You have my back. Let's plan this out. You have a year to raise money. She sat down with a spreadsheet and we planned this out. And, you know, we jumped in the deep end and decided to do it. That's fantastic. And I heard you say prepare quite a number of times throughout this description of your career prior to Zook. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the whole concept of a first-time founder and the prerequisites required in order to be successful in today's environment yeah. to raise a pre-seed and really lift the company off the ground. Um, so I, I like to think of it, I think that a lot of times people tend to put entrepreneurs in, in a box and say, oh, entrepreneurs are X, Y, and Z. And I actually think that there's a much richer environment, you know, much richer variety of entrepreneurs out there. But there is a common thread. And I think the common thread in a variety of founders that I've met and I know and I respect too, a lot of them are different than I am and see and have different expertise and come from different backgrounds. And I don't think that there is a single, you know, typecast. And says, oh, these are successful entrepreneurs. I think and and what's you know in the end of the day what works best, you have to be honest with yourself. And you know, I think I try to do this also with my co-founder as well. And say, listen, I am not perfect. These are the things that I have difficulties with. And I was very honest about it from day one, preparing him. Like this is these are the things that you're gonna have challenges with. I'm I'm letting you know in advance. I think that if you are honest with yourself and you are the CEO or the founder, you are who you are. You're not trying to be someone else. You're not trying to be like Steve Jobs because he was X, Y, and Z, or be like, you know, my former CEO at Similar Web. We're just very different people. So that's one thing. Be honest, be yourself and be true to yourself. The second thing is you have to be incredibly resilient. It is not an easy journey. Um, I try to stay away from the cliches and the roller coasters because I think it's much harder than a roller coaster. <laughs> I think you're going to have to surround yourself with a very good support system. That's something that maybe it's not up to you, but know how to ask for help, 
know to seek help. And it can be from your spouse. It can be from a close friend. It can be from an investor. But having that support system, I think, is paramount to any person's success. And whoever tells you otherwise, I think they're not being honest um, or they're not getting enough help. I think in a lot of times you have to be, you're going to get, you know, I don't know about you, Vlad, but I have gotten more no's that I care to admit, uh, really a constant flux of no's. People are telling you this idea isn't good enough. You're not far enough. You do good, whatever, a million and one excuses. And I think that you have to be a believer. And by default, you have to be an optimist. And I think that, you know, it's, it's good to have a balance between founders, have one founder that's more grounded and has that ability to show you reality, but you also have to be a dreamer because at the end of the day, a startup and the definition of the startup is doing something that's really never been done before. That's the kind of the difference between that and opening up a business, which is perfectly fine, of course. Being a startup founder, you're necessarily doing something that has never been tried before. And you're going to have a lot of skepticism around you. You're going to have a lot of people are going to tell you that it's crap, bullshit, not good enough. And you have to be an optimist. You have to be a believer. And you have to keep on expressing that belief to everyone around you at any given opportunity, internally and externally. I'm, I'm really glad you brought the optimism piece as well, because I think we can focus a lot on the resilience and the struggle of the journey and the countless no's that you're going to receive throughout. But there's there's the optimistic part of it, the visionary part of it that allows you to see the light at the end of the tunnel and to some extent fuels the resilience on the day-to-day. And, you know, risking being a little bit more mainstream as you, as you just described earlier, like I do believe there is a roller coaster in a way, but it's an emotional roller coaster more oh, than yeah. anything. It's the Completely. ability to actually have a stomach to, uh, to handle uh, being an entrepreneur each day at is, a time. Is not for the fainted hearts. No, not at all. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So I'm curious now, you have in your experience with Zook, specifically around the pre-seed, I think you, you yeah. did a great job outlining the foundation of the founder coming into this role and sort of the mindset and the emotional preparedness that uh, they should uh, handle beforehand. But you're coming now to market and actually raising capital for this idea. Yep. As a first-time founder, having been an entrepreneur around a variety of different organizations and having had the chance to shadow a CEO and a founder mm-hmm. uh, beforehand, walk us through what really moved the needle in that pre-seed round and how it came together. So the pre-seed round was definitely fueled. We kind of did it the, the opposite way. So I decided early on, I am not going to go to friends and family. Um, and this, again, I had to be true to myself. I did not feel comfortable asking money from close friends and family. I did not want to change our relationship in any way. We raised money from one family member after we already raised capital. Uh, It's kind of like a last resort because they really asked me and I I pledged in the end, but I was not crazy about the idea. Um, And we went to VCs and I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate. I can't emphasize this enough. Um, I met um, the folks at Reimagine Ventures, Easy Vidra and Kevin Baxfieler, back in when I worked for the consulting firm in New York in 2005. Kevin was actually my first boss. 
and and they both had amazing careers. Um, Easy was a partner in Google Ventures and worked in Yahoo, and and Kevin worked on Wall Street and was also a founder after the words of the startup uh, here in Israel. And when I came for advice, I went to see Kevin for advice. I was like, hey, I, I have this crazy idea. Um, by the way, it's not the idea we're, we're actually doing right now, but it was a completely different idea. And Kevin kind of said to me, and I'm, and I said, I'm thinking of leaving my job. He said to me, let me make your life easy. Come to us, be an entrepreneur at residence, every match of vendors will help you like incubate this idea. We'll help you find a co-founder. And if it's good, we'll invest. And they did exactly that. They, they mentored uh, myself and my co-founder Matan, and they have always had our back from day one. They invested in Zoo before we had really any product or really any line of code. And they were our believers in the fact that we had a, a, a VC and a good VC that was willing to back us really opened the door for other VCs. So the first kind of um, pre-seed round that we did, the pre-pre-seed round that we did, um, we raised from three different venture capital firms, which is not trivial for a startup that doesn't have anything and first-time founders. And after that, that kind of opened up everything for us. And, and, and they've been involved ever since then. After that, we were part of Techstars joint program with Comcast and NBC Universal. So Comcast invested together with Techstars, which is great. And eventually, we were, after that, we opened up to other VCs. We brought on Insight Partners to invest in a pre-seed round, which is not trivial for Insight Partners. We got a few great angel investors, including Patrick Lee, who was the founder of Rotten Tomatoes, and Guy Gamzu, who was the first investor in Fiverr, and a bunch of other great investors, including venture partners at SoftBank, even, who invested privately. Um, and I feel like we've been, you know, on one hand, incredibly fortunate, but on the other hand, I, I can't, like, it was incredibly hard. Like, nothing has been easy. And especially if you look at the Israeli market, the Israeli market is exceptional in anything related to security technologies, right? Cyber stuff, man, we're, we're amazing. Right, top notch. Uh, we're very, very good in enterprise software, enterprise SaaS. Very, very good at that. Uh, anything that they, the ad tech, uh, we've done, we've done exceptionally well. Um, with a few exceptions, Israel is not very much a B two C oriented market. So raising capital as an early stage consumer business that is focusing on baby boomers and grandparents, who does that? It was kind of people looked at us like. Who are you guys? Like, what are you doing? You guys seem like smart people. Why are you doing this? And I, and I said, that's where that, not only resilience, but that belief has to click in. It's like, no, I am completely, I completely believe in this market. I completely believe in this demographic that we're targeting. I completely see the opportunity and the potential here. And we're going to do this. And it, it took a lot of time and immense amount of effort. Um, a lot of crying, but uh, eventually I was very, very fortunate to get the, the backers that we have, and, and a lot of them are also continuing with us. So Insight right now are continuing with us to the next round. We imagine, of course, are always have our backs and always the first to come on board, and a few other investors in the states as well. And uh, we're working on you know, getting that round going. And I don't doubt that it's been incredibly difficult to attract that level of interest at such an early stage. So I'm curious to understand your perspective around too much interest, if that may be the case, specifically around dilution at an earlier stage and deciding how much support and funding do you really need 
yeah. to get started when the company is not really worth that much yet? I think so. There's two components there. One is what you need to raise in order to get to the next phase. And this is where the modeling comes into place. You really need to, you know, you asked earlier about planning. This is where planning comes to place. I think if you're able, and we're doing this right now in this round, to articulate very clearly to investors, this is what we need capital for. These are the KPIs that we're looking to reach. These are the benchmarks that are set in place. And this is when we're looking to do reach those KPIs as well. And this is what we need in order to reach that. And then it's very, very clear, right? If you just say, hey, we're raising $5 million because we want to raise $5 million, I think it's a bad signal. But if you're very articulate and you can plan and say, this is what we're raising capital for, this is what we're going to do with that capital, this is the plan, this is the spreadsheet showing you how we reach these milestones in that given time period. And we're, we're modeling this out not only for next year, for the next round, but for 10 years down the road, and this is how the company is going to reach a billion-dollar valuation, then it becomes very, very clear. Naturally, it also needs to work, right? So doing that first pre-seed, that first raise is very, you know, incredibly difficult because you're selling a dream. There's no metrics. You can't compare historical data. Right now, we've been in the market for about two years right now. We've been monetizing for a bit over a year right now. There are cohorts data. We can show progress. We can show what we've done in terms of CAC reduction, in terms of being ROI positive right now, in terms of LTV and CAC ratio, we can show the growth at a fixed and very limited marketing budget. And I think that if you were able to show very clearly that this is a solid team that is working incredibly lean and is talented and is, and is you know, gun-ho and getting this done, and here are the results. Like, look at, the, look at how much we've improved with so little resources in just a year. And I think it becomes a, you know, I'm going to say something maybe, maybe not, uh, not good for the venture ears here. But at the end of the day, you know, venture capital, there aren't a lot of ventures. You know, they're not trying to make, you know, incredibly risky. They want to be smart about their investments. They have LPs. They need to go back and show how they're going to return the fund. And I, and I understand that. So they're trying to predict the success of a company. I think that us as founders, if we're able to kind of um, help take away the gray as much as possible, naturally there's risk. This is a startup. That's part of the game, right? But if you're able to clearly show that there's a pathway and a plan and to couple that with the historical performance, um, I think that it's a very good thing to show and it helps kind of ease them in to making that round. Um, the last thing I just want to add, Vlad, and is is in the end of the day, I feel that people want to do business with people still. I know we've all seen the rise of AI and generative AI, and of course, we're making good use of it as well. But in the end of the day, people want to work with people that they enjoy to work with, that they trust, that they believe in, that they see that passion. And I think that's kind of like the, the joker element. Right. Yes, the metrics need to work, and yes, everything needs to be in place. And the company, you know, you're investing in something you want to see that it actually makes sense from an investment perspective. At the end of the day, if you want to, if you're going to be involved in this business in a, in a way, you want to be able to look at the, the entrepreneur in the eye and say, "I like this guy or this girl, and I trust them, and I know that they're going to go to war for this and do whatever they can to be successful." And I think that's a really important element as well. 
Absolutely. It's the relationship building that, to some extent, must, in, in, in certain ways, precede the traction and the factual thing, because there must be yeah. some trust established in the first place for that communication must. to even exist in the oh, first place. Yeah. yeah. That's why that first date is so important, right? That's where their first impression is. And they're either going to, it's, it's very, at the end of the day, it's black and white. If they like you and they trust you and believe in you, they're going to continue the conversation. Uh, if they don't like you off the bat, then it doesn't matter how good the metrics are. And if there's a trust issue, if they don't enjoy, you know, speaking with you, they don't believe in what you're saying, it's not going to work. Absolutely. And not towards the end of the episode to jump in a series of quick rapid fire questions with you know, shorter questions and shorter answers, but not necessarily just about the business. But the first one I will have to ask about uh, Zoog and fundraising in general. Biggest mistake that you would never repeat again fundraising? Hmm. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think about this. Biggest mistake. I think stuff that I, I need to improve um, as I do this, because as I said, as you said, like being a first time founder, and this is the hard thing, you're learning as you as you're running, right? You're running a sprint and, and as you're sprinting, you need to change course and you need to learn, right? To see whether or not you're, you're running in the right direction. I think that um, a lot of the times I've given too much leeway for investors, right? Even giving them a too long a timeline or being ambiguous about what we're raising, right? Saying, hey, we're also doing a, a safe, but we're also have, you know, this opportunity to do a price round. And I think that um, we should not be apologetic. We should be very, very firm about our ask and be confident about our ask and stick with it. And if it's not right, it's not right. Let it go. That's something that I have had a hard time struggling with. I just don't let go. Now, sometimes that's worked and I've brought investors to the table because they said, oh my God, this guy's not going to leave us alone. Like we better just, you know, let him shut up and, and, and invest already. But also like know when to part ways. And know that sometimes, you know, you might meet them at a later stage of the company, and that is fine. Great answer. Next one. One thing that people don't know about you of that they should know about you. There's a lot of things that they don't know. I don't know about should know. That's completely different. Hmm. These are hard, Vlad. This is hard. I need to I never said they were easy. I know. Wow, you're kidding. Um, first of all, so I I am dyslexic. I have I I have suffered from ADHD since a young, very young age. Before everyone, you know, developed ADHD somehow miraculously, but I was at school. I was on Ritalin since I was you know six years old. Uh, very young age, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and it's been a struggle for me my entire life dealing with it. And I've learned different ways to cope with it. The fact that I'm sitting right now for an hour is crazy for me, <laughs> but I've learned how to do so. And I don't think any of my investors know this about me, uh, but it's something that, that I've struggled with. I struggled with in school. It was incredibly hard for me. Uh, you know, in, in, even in Columbia, I had a bunch of, I had to go to a psychologist to get extra help so I can get more time to focus on tests and get more time, more help, you know, beyond that. Um, and I think that, as I said, like, you know, it was important for me to be very, very frank with my co-founder about this and there's certain aspects of my, my ADHD that continue to haunt me till today. 
Um, and I have not shared this with investors, I don't think, to, at least with most of them. And it's probably, it's not that it's, I think it's, it defines me, but I think that if they knew it, it would probably, like, it's not that they'd, they'd be like, oh, that makes sense in some way or another. It's very interesting and not necessarily the first founder who was able to make or transform this actually into a strength in their business, which is yeah. very fascinating to see. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Last but not honest, least, yeah. one person that you've consistently looked up to over your career. Um, so my first boss at SimilarWeb was just phenomenal. We've been, we've been he, today, he's actually the CEO, the global CEO of, uh, of a big, big company. And I've looked up for him. He's been a mentor of mine for, for many years since that time and always looked up to him. Uh, my career, I come to him to advice. Half the times he's trying to recruit me, which is not fun. When we get that off the table, he gives me solid advice, uh, both you know on the emotional level of the entrepreneurial journey, but also but also on the professional level, I can come to him with pretty much everything. And he's seen me, and he's really he really you know took me under his wing at Similar and taught me what the digital world actually means and what it means to operate in the digital world and, and terminology that I had no idea. I came from a completely different industry, and he believed in me, and he's like, "I'm taking you." We're going to do great things together. And, and he's been like that for, for a long time. And I deeply appreciate him. His name is uh, Tal Jacobson. He's uh, phenomenal. Really is. Fantastic. Yeah. I hope at one point we'll, we'll have him on the podcast. Oh, you should. Um, he's and uh, really he's great. And uh, yeah, and if I, I didn't mention Tal and Tan's, of course, the CEO of Perion, which is a great company and very successful. Awesome. And uh, the question that we usually end the episodes with, uh, looking back at your yeah. life and career, who are you most grateful for? Oh, so easy. Definitely my wife. My wife has been really, not only my rock, uh, has always given me solid advice in any point of my career uh, and in general in life, but has also like pushed me. And I think that's, someone, that's something that, that I deeply, deeply appreciate not just supporting your decision, but actually being the wind in your back and believing in you, even when you have doubts. I think having that person in your life, uh, and in my case, it's really, it's my wife, um, that it continues to push me. It's not just about, you know, do this, I believe in you, but you're doing this like right now. You're leaving your job. You're going to study in the States. Like we were together for like eight months in Israel before I was accepted to Columbia. And I was not sure I wanted to go. I was perfectly happy in Israel. And she said to me, you're going to go, you're going to go. And this is going to be amazing. I'll, and we're going to do long distance for a year, year and a half, and we're going to be fine. And I'm going to come and join you and it's going to be good. And I was debating about China. And she's like, you're going to China. And, and, um, so she's been a great, uh, a great, uh, source of, of power for me throughout my journey. Unbelievable. What a great answer, Yov. Thank you so much. My gratitude goes to you uh, for taking the time to share more about your story and inspire a new generation of entrepreneurs and uh, really taking the time to have this conversation during such a difficult time for you and your country. Yov, cannot uh, ex properly express my gratitude to you for uh, doing this and really much looking forward to another episode of the Fundraising Debrief where we can discuss your successes at Seed or Series A or even later.
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Vlad. Take care. What a great conversation. If you enjoyed it, make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and be on the lookout for a new episode in two weeks as we interview another amazing startup founder and debrief their successful fundraising story. This podcast was made possible by Flowly. If you're currently fundraising or planning to do so in the near future, create a free account today on Flowly at flowly.com. That's F-L-O-W-L-I-E.com and get access to an investor database curated just for you and powerful deck chain capabilities with advanced access and engagement tracking. Are you ready to take your fundraising journey to the next level and join thousands of founders across the globe who use the platform every single day? Find the discount code in the show notes and sign up today. That's it for today's episode. See you next time.